On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you both to the October 2019 podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and I'm the co-editor of the CHEST podcast section. I'd like to thank our CHEST audience for joining us today for what will be a really terrific conversation. Today, we'll be debating uh, the following question, whether broad-spectrum antibiotics should be routinely administered to all septic patients as soon as possible. And today we're fortunate to have uh, Dr. Anil Koz and Dr. Jaisal Patel as our guests. So Anil, uh, please go and introduce yourself. Perfect. Good morning, and thank you very much for inviting uh, me to participate in this podcast. It's really an honor. And my name is Angel Koz. I am an associate professor at the University of Kentucky, and I also am the ICU director at the Lexington VA uh, Medical Center here in Lexington, Kentucky. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. Uh, Jay, if you could introduce yourself as well. Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Jay Patel. Um, first of all, thank you for uh, having me on as well. It's really a privilege to be here. Uh, I am currently at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I'm an associate professor in the Department of Medicine. Great to have you on the podcast, Jay. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, I'll let uh, Anil uh, give us the point. Excellent. So uh, the point of this discussion is uh, the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics in, in septic patients as soon as possible. And I think Jay and I both will agree that sepsis is a very important healthcare problem that fortunately have seen a decline in the mortality over time. And what we are advocating is the initiation of early and broad-spectrum antibiotics for the management of septic patients. And I would like to divide that first in early. And why early? Because, I mean, there is literature from several years ago uh, from Anand Kumar that showed that after the onset of hypotension, uh, the delay of antibiotics is associated with a decline in survival of around 7.5% for every hour. And that has been corroborated in more contemporary data. I think the one, the most robust that we have is the New York uh, State Health Department, uh, where there is a sepsis mandate that shows that for every hour of delay, there's also a 4% increased mortality. And not only that, so I mean, we're talking about antibiotics and we are happy about the mortality decline and we see that there is a strong association between the early initiation of antibiotics and that decreased mortality. But also there is um, the perception that maybe this only is favorable in patients who are very sick, maybe in septic shock. But there are some other studies, uh, one from Northern California from Vinnie Lou's group that show that actually that benefit, it's also um, present in patients with severe sepsis and even patients with sepsis alone using the old definitions that we had before sepsis 3. Not only that, another study coming from Kansas that shows that uh, if the antibiotics are delayed, patients with milder forms of um, sepsis tend to progress more frequently to more severe forms of sepsis. And for every hour of delay, patients with severe sepsis are more likely to um, progress, progress to septic shock by 8% if antibiotics are delayed. Uh, so that's the early part, and I'm not sure that there's going to be a whole lot of discussion regarding the early part. I think a lot of the discussion is going to center around the broad spectrum part. And the broad spectrum, as defined by surviving sepsis, is the use of one or more antimicrobial agents with the specific intent of broadening the range of potential pathogens covered. And I think here the important take-home message that I would like to 
present is that broad-spectrum antibiotics does not mean the same combination of antibiotics for every patient. What we advocate as broad-spectrum antibiotics is the use of antibiotics that are uh, targeted to most likely pathogens depending on the presentation of the patient because it will be completely different if you have a 25-year-old um, college student who presents with pneumonia. Um, probably the pathogens are completely different. You have a 55-year-old uh, patient with uh, both marrow transplant and complete different presentation. Also, it could be a complete different scenario if you have a patient with uh, tracheostomy and chronic frequent infections affected by multidrug-resistant organisms. So what we are advocating by broad spectrum is a thoughtful choice of antibiotics to cover most likely pathogens. Unfortunately, there's never, I mean, not unfortunately, but there will not be a study that will compare uh, broad spectrum to no antibiotics because that's, I mean, that would not be ethically doable. But based on retrospective data that we have, uh, we know that if inappropriate antibiotics are chosen, the mortality is much, much higher. So our contention is that we should give broad spectrum antibiotics. Again, this does not mean the same combination of antibiotics. Unfortunately, this is something that has happened that a lot of uh, Patients with sepsis receive a standard combination of antibiotics, and that is not the intent of this. The intent is that a patient should receive broad-spectrum antibiotics to cover most likely pathogens based on the presentation, based on the local resistant patterns, and based on all the comorbidities that the patient may have uh, so that we cover most likely pathogens, and by that, uh, trying to give appropriate antibiotics very early. If we do not do that, what, what could be the... the the, the other side of the coin. If we delay antibiotics, we know that mortality goes high. The other approach would be to wait for um, uh, microbiology information. I mean, now we have more um, um, some of the PCR techniques that allow us to get this a little bit sooner, but if we go strictly by cultures, we will be going back to what we used to do before the early goal directed therapy uh, studies, study that showed that, I mean, before then, uh, antibiotics were often given after the microbiology confirmation was uh, available, and at that point, it's too late, and that's where the paradigm changed in 2001 when, uh, although, I mean, we, we're not going to discuss all the elements of the resuscitation bundle that was described in the early goal like the therapy, but I think early antibiotics and early flu administration are the cornerstones of that, uh, of that approach, and that, I think, in my opinion, has been what has decreased the mortality so significantly over the last 10, 15 years. So I think I'm going to stop there, uh, let uh, Jake uh, give his approach, and then maybe we can have a discussion after that. Perfect. So uh, the thrust of your argument, uh, Anil, is that it shows mortality benefits and that the definition of broad-spectrum antibiotic uh, should be tailored to the patient's uh, clinical presentation. Jay, you obviously disagree with that position, so I'll let you take it away. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Angel, for that um, very, very concise uh, summary of your point. Um, I, I think Angel and I will, will both agree that uh, clinicians really face two key practical questions related to antibiotics in sepsis and septic shock. Um, he nicely summarized the evidence about when antibiotics uh, should be started um, and certainly gives his point on which antibiotics 
should be given as well. I'm not going to recap um, the first point here as well, but I want to sort of take a step back for just a second. And the reason is, is because um, I want to just reiterate what the campaign provides in terms of their recommendations. And so the campaign provides a strong recommendation um, to uh, start um, broad spectrum uh, antibiotics. This is in uh, section D of the recommendation. Um, to cover all likely pathogens in patients presenting with sepsis and septic shock. Now, I think that recommendation should give um, individuals, clinicians, pause. And it should give clinicians pause because um, we can certainly see the implications of broad-spectrum antibiotics for every single patient who presents with sepsis and septic shock. And so our argument is that the strong recommendation for broad-spectrum antibiotics for all septic patients is actually rooted in low-quality evidence as opposed to the moderate-quality evidence that is suggested in the actual recommendation. So if I can take one more step back for just a second, what does that mean to have low-quality evidence? The Surviving Sepsis Campaign um, uses the GRADE system, which stands for um, Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluations, to um, assess the quality of evidence from high to very low. And based on that, they link the quality evidence to determine a strength of recommendation. Now, the recommendation for strong for antibiotics in broad-spectrum antibiotics in all patients with sepsis and septic shock was rooted, again, in moderate quality evidence. But we would argue that it was actually rooted, again, in low quality evidence. And so why is that? If we look at these studies that were cited for patients comparing appropriate antibiotics to inappropriate antibiotics, what's really interesting about these studies is the comparator group. So when we have um, studies that evaluate harm, um, we look, all one can do is to identify observational studies um, that, to draw inferences from. Now, these observational studies uh, look at two groups, those who are exposed to the potential harm and those who are not exposed to the potential harm. And our argument is that the meta-analysis from Paul in 2010, which looked at 48 studies comparing appropriate to inappropriate uh, antibiotics, almost created what we call a straw man argument, in which case the comparator group was bound to to do worse. And why are they bound to do worse? And they're bound to do worse, we think, because these individuals um, are more likely to derive harm from broad-spectrum antibiotics because these antibiotics were meant to work to begin with. So all of these studies, what do they have in common? They had in common that the antibiotic actually has in vitro activity against the organism. That's what was defined as it was appropriate. And inappropriate in these studies was defined as the antibiotic lacks in vitro activity against the organism. So when you compare, uh, um, when you look at studies of harm that looked at, um, is this supposed to derive benefit or is it supposed to derive harm? The studies that actually derived benefit were, again, compared to st uh, studies where the uh, antibiotic lacked in vitro activity against the organism, which then certainly made the appropriate antibiotics look better. The second argument is that does appropriate antibiotic equate to broad-spectrum coverage? So we certainly don't 
think that, and we think that's sort of a leap of logic. And um, we think that um, what's more important is tailoring antibiotic therapy as well. Nowhere in the 48 studies that were summarized by Paul does it suggest that appropriate antibiotic is broad-spectrum antibiotic. In fact, the definition is simply that it had in vitro susceptibility to the organism. And so um, we uh, suspect that um, this is a non sequitur, meaning it does not follow from the argument that was posed. And we would rather suggest that we should tailor antibiotics. And I think this is what Angel was getting at um, in his latter part of his argument as well. And so we think that no, IT, no two ICUs are the exact same. And empiric antibiotic choices take into a context things like the microbiology of infections, the presence or absence of things like MDR risk factors, local organism prevalence, local susceptibility patterns, and available resources. Um, the reason for that is because um, antibiotic resistance patterns vary not only across the United States but across the world. So, for example, um, data from the Centers for Disease Dynamics, Economics, and Policy uh, suggests that Klebsiella pneumonia resistance is virtually non-existent in places like Australia, where the highest prevalence is in places like um, India. Similarly, uh, MRSA resistance rates are virtually non-existent in places like the Netherlands, whereas in the United States, um, uh, it's much, much higher as well. So if we implement a one-size-fits-all blanket approach, these, these numbers are bound to change, and we are bound to increase antimicrobial resistance with indiscriminate antimicrobial uh, use as well. And I think that's going to be really important, um, particularly because as sepsis is better recognized and the incidence of sepsis is certainly uh, increasing, and the guidelines don't discriminate between sepsis and septic shock in terms of giving broad-spectrum antibiotics bound to increase the amount of antimicrobial use in all categories. And we certainly know that the risk for bad things to happen um, is not uh, the same for all patients, and it lies on a continuum. And so we would argue that giving broad-spectrum antibiotics is probably going to be more beneficial for those patients who are sicker uh, at presentation. Some uh, A patient like uh, what Dr. Kaz had mentioned an older individual who's immunocompromised, who may have greater risk for fungal uh, burden and presents with a greater severity of illness. That's the individual, I think, who may benefit, who may drive the most benefit from truly broad-spectrum antimicrobial coverage, which includes antifungal and even antiviral coverage as well. I'll pause there. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Jay. Um, so, uh, Anil, uh, Jay brings up a number of issues, specifically the quality of evidence and appropriate versus broad-spectrum antibiotics. I'll allow you to uh, respond to the first query that he has about uh, the quality of evidence and whether it's truly moderate uh, uh, level or whether it's uh, low level. Okay, thanks, Jay, for your argument. So, I think... Uh, we can agree on the fact that a lot of the evidence that unfortunately uh, drives guidelines and uh, it, it does not is not as strong as one would like. But unfortunately, uh, the panels are uh, bound to make recommendations based on the best available evidence and 
I mean, I cannot speak for I mean, the panel surviving sepsis campaign. This is my own opinion and interpretation of the data is that uh, I think that the recommendation being a strong, it is important because if the recommendation is not given a strong, it may give you the perception that it's not that important. But I agree that the evidence the quality of the evidence is not necessarily, uh, I mean, it's not what we would like to see, a randomized control trial. But unfortunately, I don't think that we will ever see that either. And there's some, um, there's some uh, facts that one will just have to, I mean, take from, from what the evidence that is available and not wait for the perfect evidence to, to show that because it may never be available. And I think this is one of those instances. Jay, your response, uh, in your article, you mentioned the implications of what a strong recommendation is, or what, it, uh, what, what results from it. When guidelines make recommendations for uh, using the grade system, you know, a strong recommendation as opposed to a weak recommendation has implications, and it has implications for three key stakeholders, for patients, for clinicians, and for policymakers. So if you're a patient, and you catch wind that this is a strong recommendation, well, maybe in this situation you would want that course of action, and maybe only a small proportion of individuals would not want to have broad-spectrum antibiotics. If you're a clinician, then most individuals you know, should re receive the recommended course um, of action, and that course of action could be used as a quality criteria or a performance you know, indicator as well. And then if you're a policymaker, well, then it can be adopted, again, as policy in most, most situations, again, including for use as a, you know, performance uh, indicator as well. One of the issues with that is that, you know, while performance measures um, do encourage um, appropriate use of therapies, given that the incidence of sepsis is increasing, in this situation, it may also increase the inappropriate use of therapy as well. And certainly the opportunity for over-treatment are going to be huge. And as a result, it can certainly lead to unintended consequences, including harm. Your response, Daniel? Yes. So um, actually, uh, I think I would like to address the three points regarding patient, clinicians, and quality. And I will put it from my own perspective. If I was a patient with sepsis, I would like to get broad-spectrum antibiotics uh, early, as early as possible. Uh, I would be very unhappy if that would not happen. And as a clinician, I strive to do that, and I, we have quality improvement projects to actually target the early administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics. But again, broad does not mean the same combination, and, uh, by, and by that I don't mean uh, what Jay referred earlier, including antifungals or antivirals. I, the definition of broad that I have and I, that all the co-authors of our side of the, of the debate was targeted to the, to the most likely pathogens, and that is different for every patient. So not, uh, we were not going to be giving antifungals and antivirals to a young college student who presented with pneumonia. So that is not what we are advocating. I think maybe the part of the broad word is kind of getting to can insinuate that the patient should get everything, including antifungals and antivirals, and that's definitely not. And talking about the quality part, uh, there is already one quality measure, which is SEP1, uh, which was adopted by CMS, and it hasn't been made for uh, paper performance. They're collecting data, it's voluntarily reported, and from what I know, uh, 
this has actually been um, associated with decreased mortality. And again, this is not randomized controlled data. This is just comparing the patients in which compliance of all the elements of the bundle, and one of those is early antibiotics, or was, uh, there was compliance with uh, versus the ones that there was not compliance and there is, a, there is a mortality decline. So kind of summarizing, as a patient, I would like to, uh, to get antibiotics pretty early. And by that, I mean uh, broad spectrum targeted to my presentation as a clinician, that's what we have been striving to do, improving quality improvement, uh, I'm sorry, uh, establishing quality improvement projects to make this a priority in the care for sepsis patients, and quality is already one that is already showing the early signs that this actually makes a difference. How do you respond to that, Jay? Um, I, I know he seems to be taking your arguments and using it for his benefit. Well, I, I, I certainly appreciate that. Um, I think that Dr. Kaz brings up a very uh, important point, and this really centers around the semantics of uh, guideline development. And so uh, specifically, um, if we look at Table 6 of the Survivors Sepsis Campaign document, there they, they define the important terminology for antimicrobial recommendations. And um, they look at broad-spectrum therapy multi-drug therapy, and combination therapy. And when I read this for the, for the first time, they all looked very similar as well. And this can certainly be confusing for the lay reader, the bedside clinician, um, and even those who are, you know, well-informed. And so I certainly agree with Dr. Kaz that we need to um, improve the language of how we define things like broad-spectrum therapy versus multi-drug therapy versus combination therapy and use terminology that he's using, such as targeted to the most likely organism. Um, and, we, and, that is the, and, and that is the case where we're really going to have sort of more tailored uh, antimicrobial uh, utilization as well. Um, more recently, um, uh, Haley Prescott and uh, Ted uh, Iwashina wrote a really nice paper, and they talked about um, how to frame the timing and broadness of initial antimicrobial uh, 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 therapy as well. And they put into um, that framework what Dr. Kaz and I are sort of both talking about, which is context. And context is going to be really important. So if you have a greater severity of illness or increased risk of of dying. So who, who are these individuals? Well, these can be obviously identified um, using Q-SOFA criteria, but other ways and other things include, um, you know, lactic acidosis, um, frank respiratory failure, altermentation, and shock, you know. And if you have a high likelihood of bacterial uh, infection, which includes individuals who have uh, MDRO risk factors, immunocompromised um, at baseline, prior history of um, uh, highly resistant uh, pathogens. Well, I think what we're both sort of saying here is that those are the individuals where we're going to target the broadest form of uh, antimicrobial use versus an individual who is younger without any other risk factors. We may sort of target our broad spectrum antimicrobials to that particular uh, organism as well. But again, uh, I can't uh, emphasize the, the semantics enough and how important it is so that when two individuals uh, read the same document, 
they can take home um, sort of a very similar message. And um, in the current form, the campaign, it's, it's confusing to, dif- to differentiate between broad-spectrum, multi-drug, and combination therapy. Well, thanks for highlighting those uh, points. I want to turn to um, a, a, a portion of the discussion that we haven't covered as yet, and that is the terminology as soon as possible. Um, so for some, that means within an hour. For some, means for that means within three hours. So um, I'll let uh, Anil go ahead and uh, uh, go through that with us as to when should we be starting these antibiotics? Do you have a specific time frame? When do you start your time frame? And should we be starting it for all septic patients or just those with sepsis or, or just those with septic shock? Okay, thank you. Uh, so regarding the timing, I think it is important to recognize that sepsis, and unfortunately this is something that we don't necessarily see, uh, sepsis is a medical emergency. And I, when I present this to my fellows, residents, I typically put a parallel between sepsis and acute MI, STEMI, and I ask them what is the mortality of each one of them and or which one is higher, and that gives them a pause because, I mean, I think it has been wired into our brains that when we see a patient with chest pain, we I mean, grab the EKG machine, we do everything and try to do it very quickly. When we see somebody with the potential sepsis, and that is part of the problem because sepsis is not doesn't have a very characteristic uh, sign or symptom. It's a conglomeration of very nonspecific signs and symptoms, and it takes the clinician to pull all of that together. But once there is that, the suspicion that the patient is septic, we should strive to give them as soon as possible. Certainly, if the patient has hypotension or signs of shock, should be immediately, I mean, what the recommendation is within the hour. The patient does not exhibit those signs. Um, probably we have a little bit more time, but again, that should not mean three, six, eight hours. I mean, it should be also as soon as possible. And I think what, what uh, centers need to strive for is to try some sort of mechanism by which antibiotics can be delivered when a septic patient is identified to minimize all these barriers that sometimes occur between the ordering uh, and, and the administration of the antibiotics, and it could be something related to uh, the order going to pharmacy or pharmacy preparing the medication or, or the delivery of the medication when it has been prepared. And those are areas that could be easily tackled, but I think um, re- once recognized that the patient is hypotensive as soon as possible, I mean, and I mean, what recommendation is within the hour, uh, patients with not, I mean, not in septic shock, but still sepsis, and we have to remember that by the new definition, sepsis involves some degree of an organ damage. So those patients are, I mean, are, um, have a higher uh, acuity. They're more likely to die than what we used to know as sepsis, which was the SIRS with a potential source of infection. Now, based on the new definitions, these patients with sepsis have already organ damage. So they are, what we used to know severe sepsis, they are much more uh, acutely ill than we previously uh, categorized them as, and we should strive to give the antibiotics as soon as possible. Okay. Yeah, and unfortunately, I sort of have to remain a bit agnostic uh, um, and just sort of say I'm not sure. And I say that because, you know, the guidelines don't tell us how to define time to antibiotics, um, neither in terms of really a starting point or really uh, an endpoint as well. And so imagine you're a patient who decides to wait to come into the hospital 
and you might have had some periods of relative hypotension, but it wasn't picked up until you came to the hospital. And so is that your time zero? Is it the first time that a fever is documented? Is it um, the first time that somebody actually triages you in the emergency room? Um, is it the time to a positive sepsis screening? Um, so I'm not really sure what the, um, the, the time zero is as well. And um, one of the sort of loftier goals uh, was to deliver, you know, antimicrobials within one hour of recognition, let's say, of, um, of sepsis. And um, Angel pointed out some of the, you know, SEP1 performance uh, measures that were put in place and sort of recent evaluation, you know, even suggests that less than 50% of patients who were recognized to have sepsis, you know, received all, all recommended treatments even within three hours, you know, let alone getting antimicrobials within um, one hour. So I think the, the first step is to identify what is time zero because bedside clinicians um, are going to as well as policymakers are going to be interested in knowing what am I aiming for, right? Am I aiming for the time from the first hypotensive ep uh, episode, aiming for the time that they're first triaged? Um, until then, I, I agree with Dr. Kaz and say that as soon as possible, you know, as soon as that you recognize that there is um, an individual with sepsis, organ dysfunction plus an infection uh, recognition. Gotcha. So um, we're going to start winding up uh, this podcast, and uh, I thank you both for joining us. Uh, before we uh, uh, head towards the end, I'd like uh, Anil just to bring up any points that he feels hasn't been covered uh, during this podcast. There's two points. Uh, I, I agree with Jay uh, regarding that a lot of patients will present at a much, much later point in time that some others, and unfortunately we have no control over that, and definitely uh, there needs to be also efforts, although this is not related to the, to the podcast or to the point of controversy, and to try to help the public recognize when uh, sepsis could be present. And regarding, uh, he mentioned also that compliance with uh, the SEP1 core measure. And yes, it is, it is not great. It is, uh, I mean, it's around 50%. Uh, but despite that, even with that low compliance, there is an absolute mortality reduction. So, and one more issue that I think it's important uh, to, um, to mention, uh, because we cannot advocate for the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics with, without being cognizant that I mean, there's a potential risk for um, resistance. And that is something that we need to be mindful of. And when we say broad-spectrum, again, we mean targeted to the most likely infection. That's one point. And the other one is the, the, the role, the critical role of stewardship of antibiotics. Because just by the fact that we gave a patient broad-spectrum antibiotics, uh, the first dose does not mean that we're committing the patient to a full course of antibiotics for seven or eight days. I mean, we always, every day, have to reassess what antibiotics are necessary and what antibiotics we can discontinue. Because there is definitely a role for, I mean, uh, there's definitely... Um, the antibiotics definitely have a role in the increasing uh, the emergence of antibiotic resistance, but a lot of these uh, additional doses of antibiotics that are necessary are given uh, after the initial dose, and it's when we continue the courses of antibiotics for much longer than we ought to be given. So 
And that is uh, the other point that I wanted to give um, regarding this. Thank you very much. And uh, Jay, I'll let you have uh, the final word. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I guess to conclude, um, I, I would echo Angel's statement that, you know, a randomized control trial to compare appropriate to inappropriate antibiotics is never going to be done, you know, for, for reasons that are, that are self-evident. However, um, if we look at just the, if we can clarify the semantics a little bit, then perhaps a randomized control trial that would better inform us on broad spectrum versus what we're calling broad spectrum targeted or tailored uh, antimicrobial therapy may shed additional light on this question. Because the current uh, literature base from which the inferences are drawn are akin to, again, comparing appropriate antibiotics to really no antibiotics at all. But I would take it one step further and say that comparing appropriate antibiotics to inappropriate antibiotics will undoubtedly make appropriate antibiotics seem even better. But the unintended consequences of that argument um, are sort of yet to be determined. But we know that from the literature that indiscriminate use of antimicrobial therapy certainly increases the risk of harm in, in sort of many ways, uh, including drug reactions, clostridial difficile, uh, related infections. And then sort of this collapse of the microbiome and emergence of this pathobiome, which um, we think seems to uh, increase and sustain uh, the inflammation that is observed, you know, in the sepsis uh, phenotype to begin with as well. So I would just be careful on the inferences that are drawn from the current evidentiary base and we certainly await further uh, trials, which ideally would compare broad spectrum to broad spectrum, you know, targeted uh, antibiotics. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. Um, and I'd like to thank uh, Dr. the doctors Coase and uh, Patel for a really great conversation. I think it's been very interesting to hear how very differing opinions on very similar topics have uh, resulted in such different uh, impressions on what we should be doing. I'd like to thank the chess community for joining us. Um, I'm Dominic Pepper, and this has been a chess podcast. <laughs>